this morning. We'll start that chapter. Before we do, I wanted to mention, I hope you guys got to watch uh, some of President Reagan's uh, funeral services over the last week. I didn't see a lot. I saw the cathedral highlights on PBS. I think it was Friday night, maybe. I did see the uh, sunset service. I don't, what, what day was that? Was that Friday, too? Anyway, just extremely encouraging and incredibly challenging also. Um, it's true that they didn't have some people who would have been his opposition in the past speak. But, you know, the consistent message of those who knew him well was nothing but positive about this guy who'd spent, I don't know how many years in politics. That's no small thing. And, you know, things like uh, not just optimism, but a belief in God and abiding trust in Christ. His son Ron said that when he survived the shooting in, I think it was 81, he believed that God had spared his life for the responsibility of serving as president. Um, people talked about his genuine character. In fact, several said what you saw was what you got, that he was the same person in private that he was in public. And words like real goodness, generosity, uh, kindness, these were things person after person that talked about him basically highlighted the same points of genuine godly, Christ-like character. Um, this was incredibly encouraging, and especially in our culture, you know, we have become so tarnished and jaded in so many ways. To see the president's uh, funeral, uh, it really was not about politics. It really was about faith and character and all the, in all the best ways. And uh, the songs that were sung, the speeches that were given at his funeral, the testimonies to him was just incredibly encouraging. And I was encouraged for him, and I was encouraged for our nation, and that was a reminder of true godliness, true character. I think it was uh, maybe Churchill who said that there were many politicians but few statesmen, and statesmen looked out for the next generation, and politicians looked out for the next election. And Reagan was a statesman, and he embodied those character traits that we would love, all of, I think we would love, all of our politicians to embody. I was also challenged, you know, here was the end of a great man's life, and here was the testimony about his life by those who knew him, and it made me think, what will be said at my funeral? Or what will be said at your funeral? What's your epitaph and my epitaph going to be when they speak at our funeral? Will they be able to highlight Christ-like character, godliness, goodness, benevolence, just goodness? In fact, Two of the words I heard more often about Reagan were goodness and kindness. And you know, in fact, in Proverbs it says, what is desirable in a man is kindness. And this was just great. I was so encouraged, just very, very encouraging weekend because of that. You probably already know too, you know, Reagan lived the last years of his life, the last 10 years or so of his life, uh, really unknown to the world because of Alzheimer's. And he had written a letter when he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and in fact, he said he was kind of saying goodbye while he still could. I think he used a phrase like before he entered the long twilight of his life when he knew he was going to lose progressively, more so over time, lose his memory and lose his ability to interact 
with the people he knew in the world around him. Uh, it seems like a tragedy, but uh, he seems certainly to have borne it well as his family did. <clears throat> but moving towards our passage this morning, what if, if Reagan had been diagnosed and one of us had gone up to him and said, uh, Mr. President, uh, would you like to be healed of Alzheimer's? You know, I don't think he would have taken long to say, absolutely, you bet, sure. Could I trade 10 years of, of progressive loss of memory and ability to interact with others for vibrant life with the people I love? I don't think there'd be much of a choice there. Sure, heal me now, I'll take it. That is the question that we're looking at this morning in John 5, and we'll be in verses 1 through 14, and Jesus asks the man that question. This is a question that most of the time we would think this is a no-brainer. Do you want to be healed? Sure. The truth is, it's not always that simple, and the, que and the answer is not always yes. In John 5, just as a reminder of where we've been, if you remember, uh, we've been with Jesus down south in Jerusalem, Judea area. When he spoke with Nicodemus, he went up in John 4 through Samaria, spoke with a woman at a well, and transformed the lives of many of the Samaritans. Then he went up to Cana, where he'd done that first miracle of changing water into wine. And if you remember, last week's passage was about a king's man, a nobleman, who had a son in Capernaum. Jesus was in Cana. The man came to him for help, and Jesus healed his son. He just spoke the word in Cana, and the son was healed in Capernaum. And we talked about faith and belief, and sometimes we say to the Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. And that's where we're at this morning in John 5. After these things, after that healing, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We're not clear what feast this is. There is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos, or porches. And in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. I'm going to read the rest of the text that I have. Depending on the Bible translation you have, you may or may not have these verses included. The end of verse 3 in the New American Standard reads, Waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord, verse 4, went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. The reason I say some of your texts may not include this, this is a disputed text. It's thought by many that it was added to clarify verse 7, which we'll look at in a minute. Some old manuscripts have this in them. Some old manuscripts do not. Most of the scholars think these were a later edition. If they're an edition or if they're not, it doesn't change the text, the message, or the story. <clears throat> Verse 5, a certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. You can see without verses 3, the end of verse 3 and 4, we might wonder, what does he mean? The stirring of the waters. What's going on? <clears throat> it's interesting here, too, that Jesus asks a direct, blunt question. Do you wish to be healed? The man does not give a direct answer. He, he explains why he's not healed. I'm slow. I can't get in there first. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your pallet, 
and walk. Immediately the man became well, took up his pallet, and began to walk. That was the Sabbath on that day. Therefore the Jews were saying to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. The reason John's mentioning this, this is going to come back. This will be the crux, at least initially, of the conflict and the tension between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And throughout John's gospel, when he says the Jews, typically he's referring to the Jewish leaders, the people Jesus is in greatest conflict with. Verse 11, but he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, take up your pallet and walk. In other words, if you've got a gripe, talk to the guy who healed me. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your pallet and walk? This is hilarious to me too. They don't say who healed you. Who performed the miracle? They say, who broke the law? We want him. But he who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. And afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse may befall you. Now, there's a few things we could talk about in this passage this morning. The first is the healing itself. This is interesting because this is unlike any other healing, I believe, in any of the gospel stories. And it's different for this reason. This man doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't believe to be healed, and he doesn't ask to be healed. Jesus comes up, and by fiat, so to speak, he heals this guy. This is not the the standard or the norm in the other gospel stories. Someone's sick. They've heard about Jesus, just like chapter 4. And they come to him and say, we need help. Totally different story. Has its own implications, which we won't look at this morning. There's also the whole issue with the Sabbath. And John's raising that here because it's coming up much more in the stories that will follow. And we'll look at that later. But the Sabbath becomes a key issue in John's gospel. And it is the point of conflict, at least initially, between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And we will look at that next week. But the time that I want to camp, we'll pitch our tent this morning on, is this question, do you want to be healed? And then at the end, you've become well, don't sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you. That's where I want to spend the balance of our time. Now it's interesting, we don't know specifically what was wrong with this guy. It doesn't tell us. I mean, the people that are there are infirm or sick in some way. They all are. This man is. And we know he's got a pallet, he's got a mat or something that he lies on. Probably can't walk. It says he has no one to lift him or to take him into the pool before others. But specifically, we don't know what this is. We don't know specifically what caused it. And I think for John's part or for the Lord's part, probably intentionally, this leaves the application a little wider for us. We don't know what the specifics of his illness are. Jesus says there at the end, Behold, you've become well. Don't sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you. The question is, is Jesus saying that the man's sickness, his malady, was caused by sin? Is Jesus implying that the reason he's been sick 38 years is sin? He says, don't sin anymore. You've been sinning. Don't sin anymore. Is Jesus saying the sin caused the malady? Whether it is or not, Jesus makes clear here at the end, he gives him the warning, don't sin anymore so that nothing worse befalls you. That is, future sin would produce even worse consequences. 
whether or not it was sin that got him here, Jesus said future sin would make his life even worse than it had been for the past 38 years. In fact, these words are very, very similar to Jesus' words to a woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. And just briefly, if you remember the story, the woman is caught in adultery. And in fact, this whole thing looks like a setup. The Jewish leaders are trying to bait Jesus. They don't bring the man. If she was caught, he was too. I suspect the whole thing was a setup. They bring her to Jesus and say the law requires stoning. They clearly assume he will say, don't do that. But he says the first one may cast the stone who has no sin. And of course, they all fade away. No one's going to stand there and say they have no sin. Jesus' last words to her are, go and sin no more. Almost verbatim, the same thing he says here. That is, he's speaking to a woman whose sin directly brought her into face-to-face with a death sentence by stoning. And of course, that's what the law provided. And Jesus says to this woman, whose sin clearly was the direct link to her trouble, he says, go and sin no more. And to this man that he's just healed, he says basically the same thing, go and sin no more. And he adds, so that nothing worse may befall you. Now, if his malady or his infirmity that he's had for 38 years was caused by his sin, and clearly there's a sin issue, He knows what the sin issue is. We don't. And Jesus does, or he wouldn't say this this way. He knows there's an issue. But whether or not the sin issue caused the malady, we don't assume always that it's a direct sin or a sin has directly produced a given malady or a given set of troubles or circumstances. It is a good practice, I think, if we have a sickness come into our life or some particular trial, it's always good to say, Lord, are you trying to talk to me about something? Are you getting my attention through this? That's always appropriate. But for ourselves or for others, we needn't assume that sin is the direct cause of some sickness or other type of suffering. Later on in John 9, the disciples see a blind man. In fact, the text says he was blind from birth. And they ask Jesus, when they see the blind man, the wheels in their minds are turning, and they're saying, whose sin produced his blindness, Lord? They assume the blindness was directly tied to sin, a direct sin, a specific sin. And Jesus says it wasn't his sin, and it wasn't his parents' sin. His blindness is not directly tied to some specific sin. In fact, he says later it's for God's glory. You and I live in bodies that are still subject to, to death, to sin, and sin's consequence, death. You know, if anyone tells you that's not the case, they're selling something. All of you, you know, I've got some wrinkles on my skin that I didn't have before, and those wrinkles are death. And your process and mine, not of growing up into young adulthood, but from young adulthood on, that process of, a little flab and a little wrinkle and the age spots and you name them, that's death. That's death in action. That's death at work. It's not just being sick. And it's not just being buried in a tomb that's death. Death is at work in the world we live in. Death is at work in the bodies we inhabit. And this is the norm until our bodies are fully redeemed and until God recreates a new world. We're still subject, 
in this body, in this life, to the effects of sin. And sometimes it's not ours. You know, God said to Adam and Eve, if you sin, you'll die. They sinned, and they died. And, of course, that element of death is now a part of the world we live in and a part of every human experience. So we don't have to do a specific sin to experience the fruit of sin, death, whether it's sickness or anything else. Beyond that, you know, you've got a great example of the Apostle Paul who also had a physical malady, and he talks about it. It's, it's uh, referred to briefly in a few passages, but in 2 Corinthians, he says he prayed to God, Lord, take this sin from me, this, this uh, malady from me. He prays three times, and it may be that something was wrong with his eyes, but God says, Paul, I'm not doing it. In his case, God used a physical malady to further God's work in Paul's life. Paul said, I'd seen so much, God was going to keep me from elevating myself. And he told me that his power or his might was perfected in weakness. And Paul says, so I'm, I'm good to go. Paul had a malady that was not directly tied to any sin he'd committed. But God said, I'm going to use that for you anyway. So... We can experience sickness or trouble, and it's not necessarily tied to some wrong, some sin we've done. On the other hand, sometimes sickness we incur is directly tied to sin. And I'll give you a few passages that talk about this. These passages, by the way, each are talking about Christians, which is to say these passages are talking about God afflicting people he loves, his children, those who are in his family. So in James 5, James says in verses 14 through 16, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. So far, so good. And if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Sin, specific sins, had brought sickness. And James says, confess your sins. Get right with God. Turn around and you will be healed. God's getting your attention. In 1 Corinthians 11 Uh, Corinth was an interesting place, a lot like the United States, but when their churches were getting together and they were celebrating the Lord's Supper called the Love Feast at that time, it wasn't just what we'll do later today. It wasn't a small cup and a small piece of bread. It was a meal. It was a celebration. The trouble was, in Corinth, like many places today, there was great wealth on one hand, great poverty on the other. And we have Christians from each extreme. They would come together to celebrate Christ's redemption on their behalf. And some would do it through gluttony and drunkenness while their poor neighbors next to them had nothing. This so grieved God and it was so contrary to the behavior he wanted for his children towards one another that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, this treatment by some of others, this poor treatment. Paul says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick And a number sleep, that is, a number have died. If we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged, that is, judged by God. 
In fact, he says, when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, therefore judge yourselves. This primarily has to do with the way they were treating each other. We can apply it broadly to say, before we take the Lord's Supper, Lord, is there any issue I need to settle between you and me before I come up and remember what you've done on my behalf? God had produced sickness and in some cases death. I think of this sometimes like a basketball game. This, is, this has nothing to do with the rest of the teaching. If you, you say God would bring about the death of one of his kids, what are you talking about? You know, I loved to play basketball. Loved to play basketball. If I was on the basketball team and the game's going on, you know where I want to be? I want to be in the game. I don't want to be on the bench next to the coach that I like and respect. I want to be in the game. Sometimes we sin in such a way that God says, Junior, you can't be in the game anymore. I'm benching you. I'm sitting you down next to me on the bench with, with coach is a good place to be on one hand, but it's not in the game. And in the game is where we want to be. So while going to heaven is a great thing, it's not a, it's not a loss, we want to go to heaven at the end of the game, at the end of our game or the end of our contribution and not sooner. These folks were losing out because God, as it were, benched them directly tied to sin. And then 1 John 5.16, I won't go into, but John says, if you see your brother committing a sin that leads to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I don't believe this has to do with eternal life. I believe it has to do, just like these other passages, with sickness, God's judgment, resulting in physical death. He says there's a sin that leads to death, which God will bring judgment and end your life, end the life of a Christian on earth. All of these, I'm just saying, are examples of a sin committed or a known sin committed and kept on in some cases, which brought about God's judgment or his discipline. So this can go both ways. We can suffer. We can have maladies, sickness, troubles, just because we're in this world on one hand, not because of a direct sin. And other times we can have sickness or maladies or trouble as a direct consequence of the sin we have. Related to the second, just think about a few of these. If I abuse alcohol chronically, I can damage my liver. Cirrhosis, disease of the liver. I can kill someone else, or I can kill myself drinking under the influence of alcohol. I can sin, and it can produce very direct results, negative direct results. If I abuse medications, or illegal drugs. I can develop unhealthy addictions. In fact, much of the theft in the United States goes to support addictions. It produces bad results. The sin has its own consequence. In fact, I can contract communicable diseases simply through the use of illicit drugs. HIV, hepatitis, if I practice immorality, sexual immorality with others, I can contract HIV, hepatitis, and a host of other communicable diseases. In other words, in each of these situations, a sin I embrace or participate in can produce its own very hurtful, very harmful fallout. So sin can come, or the effect of sin can come indirectly or directly. So, it was to a man for whom sin was an issue. 
that Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Sin was an issue. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And having been healed, he says to him, sin no more that nothing worse may befall you. Last week, if you remember or if you were here, I read an email from Melody Ayers in which Melody talked about a woman, a 38-year-old woman named Adrian in St. Louis that she's come to know. And Adrian lives in an abandoned building. She sleeps around. She's a crack addict. And she's got AIDS. Not a pretty picture. Sin's an issue. And healing's an issue. And to the invitation Melody gives Adrian to come to the Dream Center, and the Dream Center means medical help, a safe place to sleep, regular food, doesn't mean the AIDS is cured, but it means lots of positives. To the invitation to come to the Dream Center, Adrian says, no thanks. Because saying yes to the healing, to the invitation to the Dream Center, means saying no to the crack, to the addiction, to the sin. And Adrian's not willing to do that. Now, you and I, if, if we're, we're talking about somebody else, this is always easy. It's black and white. It's objective. We have no problem. You know, but this applies more broadly than this man at the portico or to Adrian in St. Louis. And again, I think that's in part why the specifics of this man's sin aren't listed and the specific consequences aren't listed. People, and that means you, and that means me, we all probably have issues at any given time in which God could come up and say, do you want to be healed? And to say yes to a healing that involves an area of sin means saying no to something else. Healing or health or peace or restoration means leaving something else behind. And oftentimes, we're not the, the man here this morning. We're Adrian. We say, no thanks. Now just go through a short list here with me. Perhaps for us, it's gossip or the unwise or unhealthy use of words. With the fallout sometimes being that we have alienated others because of the things we have unwisely said or shared. There's a sin, and then there's a consequence. And if God comes up and says, Mike, do you want to end your gossip today? Do I say yes or no? I kind of enjoy it, Lord. It could be unforgiveness towards others. This is a huge thing for every human on the face of the earth because we all sin, and we're all sinned against. So if I choose to disobey God's commandment to forgive others, I'll experience the fruit or the consequences of unforgiveness. I'll experience bitterness in my own life. I'll experience anger. I will, in ways that I may be conscious of or unconscious of, experience alienation between myself and other people. You know, in the end, we've talked about this before, I actually alienate God from me if I'm unwilling to forgive others. We've talked about that from the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps it's pornography 
or lust for anything, more money, homes, you name it. We live in the richest nation in the world, and I suspect we're, we're the most greedy, lustful nation in the world in the sense that lust always cries out for more. Lust, of course, is never satisfied. So no matter how much I get, I I've I've always have to get more. So if I'm holding on to lust for whatever, the consequence typically is I can't be happy with the good things God's already blessed me with. I can't be content. I can't have peace where I'm at with the things he means to bless me because I'm holding on to the sin. That has its own consequence. Perhaps it's the refusal to obey something God has specifically told you. You know, God speaks, his spirit's in us, and his word's clear. Sometimes we'll know God has an issue between us and him. And we're saying, you know, not yet, Lord, I don't want to obey. We're like the kids who are doing our thing anyway. And in which we put an impediment directly through direct disobedience between God and us. You know, if knowing God and walking with him is life, and Jesus says it is, What's that mean for us? If we're saying no thanks, we turn our back on our dad and we say we want to embrace this sin, whatever it is. We don't want to let go of that thing, whatever it is. It has its consequence. If Jesus walked up to you or I today related to some area in your life that you know is an issue and he said, do you want to be healed? What would you say? We think the answer is obvious, but that's not always the case, not in our experience. And related to any kind of sin area in our life, if he comes up and says, do you want to be healed? What does healing look like? By that I mean this. What, is it, what does it cost you? What are you walking away from? What are you turning loose of? What are you turning away from? To live means we've got to turn away from death. Holiness means we've got to turn away from sin. We can't embrace both at the same time. Jesus said you can't serve God and riches at the same time. You know, it's one or the other. And that's the truth with these things too. If he says, I'll heal you in this area, if you'll turn over that sin, what does that look like to you? Have you counted the cost and are you willing to do it? Just in closing, I want us to apply this to ourselves. You know, it's hard to believe. But in this church, with this good-looking group of people, there's sin. And I would bet that every one of us here has some issue that the Lord would like to speak to us about this morning. And so before we go on to worship and celebrate the Lord's Supper together, I'd just like us to take just a few moments to just close our eyes, bow our heads, do whatever you're comfortable with, and just ask the Lord... Lord, how is it between you and me? Lord, do you have anything between? Is there anything that I've got that's an issue? Is there any hurtful way in me, Lord, that you want me to give to you? Are we able to say this morning, yes, I want to be healed? Let's just take a moment to do that this morning, and then I'll close in prayer.
Heavenly Father, I know a, a man in your word who said uh, he wasn't worthy that you should come into his home. If you just speak the word, the healing would take place. And Lord, the truth is we say with Isaiah that we are all unclean people with unclean lips, unclean hands and feet. And Lord, it will be through no merit of our own that any of us sees your face and enters your dwelling place. Lord, our healing, our forgiveness is not based on any righteousness that we bring. Thank you, Lord, thank God that it's based solely on the merit of your Son on his death on the cross for our sins, his blood, his life covering our deficiencies, his resurrection proof, Lord, that his payment is sufficient. Lord, if you took sin so seriously that you would give your only beloved son over in death, Lord, I know you take it seriously in my life and in our lives. Lord, with David we say, search our hearts, try us, Lord, see if there be any hurtful way in us. And Lord, it's easy for each of us in our own ways to cling to sins because there appears to be some comfort, some benefit. And yet, Lord, the truth is in the end, sin always brings death. Lord, we're the blind man in the Bible. We're the infirm man in this morning's story. And Lord, when you ask if we want to be healed, help us to sound a resounding yes. Help us to be willing to leave our sins behind, to embrace you and to embrace life. Lord, help us to honor your redemption on our behalf by turning from sin, whatever that looks like for each of us, Lord. And by setting our feet with yours and putting our hand in yours, Lord. Lord, we want to be able to say with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, Lord, we desire nothing on earth. Nothing that we could cling to or hold on, Lord, is worthy of missing out on you your life, and your goodness. We commit ourselves to you this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.